Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do offer our praise to you. And I pray, Lord, that as we engage your word this morning, that it would cause us to see Jesus in all of his glory and his splendor and would cause us just to offer worship out of the depths of our heart and the depths of who we are. So thank you, God, that we can be together and to celebrate you and to be conformed to your image and now allow our hearts and our minds to be fixed upon your word that we may see Jesus. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 4. We are studying the book of Acts. If this is your first Sunday here, we're going through the book of Acts thought by thought. And we have left off here at chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 this morning of Acts chapter 4. Todd, good to have you here. Your, uh, the report is a, is a timely report. In fact, I was... I was thinking this week a lot about missions and, and people who put it all on the line and hearing these testimonies really uh, um, kind of captured my heart this morning as it just continued to stir my mind. This past week I was at a board meeting actually with uh, To Every Tribe Ministries. Uh, to Every Tribe asked me to serve on the board mainly because of our joint venture we have with Canada as we've been working to try to go up to the northern Ontario area, and we have the Karises, who are missionaries with to every tribe. We, we thought it would be beneficial to have me serve on the board to just kind of represent Kishwaukee in that partnership. And, uh, and so this past week was board meetings, which was a lot of just budgets and spreadsheets, which wasn't making me think a lot about missions. And because I'm not a high-detail guy, I start wandering off when the financial people start laying off their details. And, and so I'm daydreaming, thinking I'm a lousy board member. <laughs> probably should be paying attention to these details. And, uh, but, uh, but I started thinking about people who put it all on the line for the gospel. That thought just started taking over my, my mind a little bit. I thought about uh, just random stories of missionaries. I thought about, I, some of you may or may not remember this, but in 2001, there were two missionary girls that got arrested in Afghanistan, thrown in jail because they were out... Um, you know, sharing with these women. The Taliban were running Afghanistan at the time, and so the women were basically, you know, kind of locked up in their homes, and these two missionary girls from the States went over there to, to, to start doing outreach to these women that were basically just kept away from all of society, and they got found out and arrested and thrown in jail, and right at the beginning of the war, Afghanistan, the, the Taliban did release them. Thought about them. I was thinking about Ambria Minor, you know, here's this, this girl, early 20s, nurse, good job, and all of a sudden, you know, God stirs her heart when she was a teenager, probably even younger than that, that she wanted to use her gifts and her talents to serve God, so what does she do? She goes to northern India, serves as a nurse, serving in a difficult area. You know, why? Why would these women do this kind of stuff? Why would these pastors in, in Vietnam and other places of the world say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to risk death so that the name of Jesus would be made known. What is it that stirs and what is it that, that carries somebody through that? Well, we're going to get a little glimpse of that today here in Acts chapter 4. Peter's preached this sermon. He's out in the temple and, uh, and he's preaching and he's going to get arrested. He and John are going to get arrested and they're going to face a very intense situation. And the question is this, 
What carried them through? You know, we, we can think about it sometimes and we can just easily say, wow, boy, thank you, God, for placing me here and not there. And we could just stop with that kind of prayer, right? Wow, I got it good. Thanks, God. You know? And stop and think, well, wait a minute. What is it? I want what they have. What is it that gives them the boldness to stand firm? We're going to see that today in this passage. And we're going we're gonna to get a little glimpse. And in fact, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the rest of this story. We started it a couple weeks ago. Peter is walking into the temple. Peter and John are. The whole, you know, thousands of early church members would gather for prayer in the temple during the prayer time every day, 3 o'clock. So he's walking in. There's a lame man. The, 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 the lame man gets healed. Peter says, you know, I don't have any money, but get up and walk. And then everybody wants to know what's going on, so he proceeds to tell them, Jesus healed this guy. Jesus, the one that you killed, God raised him from the dead, and if you trust in him, you'll be forgiven, you'll have a refreshment to your soul, and you'll have spent an eternity with God forever. Those are the blessings that will come. And Peter's in the middle of preaching this when we're going to see that he and John get arrested. And that's where we've left off, at the point where they get arrested. And what we're going to do is walk through the story. Now, you'll notice the outline here. Sorry for all the Bs. It was intentional to try to find all these B words just for fun. See if I can still do it. And, uh, but it's basically the structure of the text here. It begins with people believing God. And then it moves to another, the next flow is to the boldness of Peter to proclaim a very bold message, which leaves the whole council, the religious, political establishment of Israel bewildered that these guys could preach in this way. And then what it does is it causes these bewildered group of leaders to toss a threat out to these guys, but they have a benchmark. They have a line they will not cross. We're going to see that. And as we go through that flow of the text, there are four observations that I'm going to give you at the end that I think are the four observations that if we kind of meditate on those four things, the fruit of that meditation would be boldness and courage. So we'll walk through it, then at the end I'll give you the four observations that I think if you have them and you, <clears throat> and you meditate on them, it'll give you courage. Okay, so let's look at the story. Let's begin with the belief. As I said, Peter is preaching now. There are thousands, 10, 15, 20,000 people. I mean, there's a million people probably at this point in Jerusalem, and they all would show up to the temple in prayer. So he's out on the east side in front of 20,000 people, and he is proclaiming that Jesus Christ, the one who they said crucified, God raised him from the dead, and through him there's salvation. Okay, Peter is preaching this, and notice what happens now, verse 1. <clears throat> and as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Okay, so now, he's preaching. you got to picture thousands of people around. And all of a sudden, up come the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. So who comes? I'll tell you who comes. Three, three groups come after him. The priests, you can figure out who the priests are. They're the ones that do the, the sacrificing in the temple. They're the tribe of Levi. So they, they come upon them, right? It's their temple. The police come. The temple had their own police force. The captain, the police chief of the temple police force come. And the Sadducees. Now, who are the Sadducees? 
Um, all that goes through my mind every time I hear the word Sadducees is that really dumb joke. Why are the Sadducees always crying? Because they're... Okay, thank you. You told the joke now, I didn't. So please, don't waste my time on preaching. No time for silly jokes. Okay. The Sadducees cause. All right. it really, it's like 20 years every time I read the word, the first thing that goes to my mind is that. i got to get it out. Um, the Sadducees show up. Who are the Sadducees? Israel at that point in time was a very uh, divided, just like our culture, our religious culture is today. You had really conservative people. They were called the Pharisees. You had kind of the end times people that build the, the bunkers. Those were the ascends. And then you have the Sadducees. We'll call them the liberals. They were like the liberal group. They hung out in the temple. The reason why they hung out in the temple is the Pharisees wouldn't hang out in the temple because the temple, this temple that they were in was finished by Herod, and Herod was half Jewish, half Gentile, and so the Pharisees said it's a defiled room, we'll never go in there. And so the Sadducees, they went there because they were liberal. They could hang out there. They were fine with that. Sadducees had pretty interesting doctrine. Their name itself actually means the righteous ones, which is pretty unique. But, but, but they had a certain theological bent. You need to know this about this story. The first thing that the Sadducees did not believe in is that there was ever going to be a bodial resurrection. They said there's no bodial resurrection at all. What's a bodial resurrection? The belief that, that when we die, that there will come a time when God will unite our soul to a, to a new body that will be perfect and we will be able to live in that body for all eternity with him. The Sadducees said that won't happen. The second thing the Sadducees actually denied was the immortality of the soul. They actually believed when you died, that was it. They didn't believe in a spirit world, and they believed that all that mattered were the choices you make in life right now. That's their theology. Okay, so very here and now kind of teaching. So Peter is preaching what? The one that you crucified died, but God raised him from the dead, resurrection, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved, you'll be refreshed, and you'll go spend an eternity with God in an afterlife. That's his message. So thank you. He's got a, he's, there's no Sadducees in this room right now. They believe this. This is what he's preaching. Here are the Sadducees. They hear this. Luke wants us to know that they're running in with the temple guards, and they're running in with the priests. And notice verse 2. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See it? There is no resurrection. He's saying, yes, there is. Jesus rose from the dead, and you can too. Because even though we have a, an outline of what Peter said, there's more teaching going on. He's saying more than what Luke records here. He's unpacking these truths for them. They come in. They're upset. They don't want to hear a message that Jesus died and he rose, and the good news of his death is he died in your place so that you could be raised with God. They don't want to hear this. So they have a doctrinal issue with this. They're going to, uh, and so they come in, and look at verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in the custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay, so they arrest them. The good news for Peter and John is they didn't do to, to Peter and John what they just did to Jesus a couple months earlier. Remember, they arrested him and tried him at night so no one could see the trial. At least in this case, they said it's too late for 
uh, trial, so we'll just throw you in jail. But what I want you to notice is verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So they count the men. There's roughly 5,000 men, which means there's more than 5,000 have gotten saved. Only the men are being counted. So you could have 8,000, you could have 10,000, who knows? It's a large group. Now what is amazing to me is this. Peter never got to finish his sermon. Now this is an important point, and you'll need it at the end of the sermon here when we wrap this up. Peter never got to finish the sermon. He's hauled off as he's still preaching, but it doesn't matter because people heard the word and believed. Now what's the point I'm trying to make about this? The point I want to make about this is a very simple point. There's no fanfare, no manipulation, because Peter saved no one. Just like Peter healed no one. Peter didn't heal the lame man that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And Peter didn't save these people. God saves people. And so the good news of this is they can just be faithful in proclaiming and they can trust God. Which means you could be in a room with 20 people and you could be telling them about Jesus and 19 of them could want to kill you. And you might think, wow, there's 19 people here who want to kill me. I should probably keep quiet. But the reality is that you can keep preaching because God could open the eyes of one person in that room and you might not ever even know it. The good news is that God is the one who is in charge of salvation. He requires us to be faithful with his word and to trust him to do his work. I don't manipulate anybody. I don't have to argue you into the kingdom. I don't have to debate you into the kingdom. I just need to be faithful to tell you the truth that through Jesus you can be saved. And to those who hear it, to those who hear it, get saved. And God, at that moment, well, he's being carted off, right? No altar calls, no nothing. He's being hauled off by temple police, and over 5,000 people get saved. There's the belief. Now, this belief now leads to the boldness. So let's move on in the story. <clears throat> Look at what happens next. Verse 5. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. That is a large group. They are now brought in. If you want to write this in like an, an equivalent in our country, it'd be saying that Peter and John were brought before the president and his cabinet and all of Congress and all of Senate and all of the Senate, as well as the Supreme Court. They are brought before everybody. Notice this. Let me kind of walk you through every piece that's here. First, you've got the rulers. These are, you might call them the temple guards, the administrators of the temple. They are the, the leaders. They run the temple. Brought before the elders. Sometimes these guys were called the Sanhedrin. You might hear that name, Sanhedrin. These guys are, are, kind of came out of Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, when, uh, when Moses is trying to run all of Israel and his father-in-law comes and says, listen, you need some elders. You need people to help you. You cannot do everything. You need to kind of dispense this down. And so the elders eventually became called the Sanhedrin. They were kind of councilmen, wise leaders that helped provide wisdom. So the elders are there. The scribes are there. These are the ones who copy the Bible. Remember, no copy machines, no word processors. So you got people, you know, when you need another manuscript, you got one guy who writes it. 
you know, and, and so these guys were considered experts of the law because they were write the Bible for a living. They just copy it. They know it. So whenever there was a big theological issue, you'd see scribes hanging around saying, well, let me remind you of this verse. Let me remind you of this passage. You have Annas, the high priest. He's the senior priest in the temple. But you also have Caiaphas. Caiaphas, Annas was there because, you know, there's kind of a rotation of the high priest. But Caiaphas actually was appointed by Herod, and he kind of served as kind of the, the high priest, the political high priest. So you've got the political high priest, the religious high priest. John and Alexander, two men who were prominent temple leaders of that day, as well as all of the high priestly descent, or we could just say it this way, the rest of the tribe of Levi. They mean business with these guys, right? I mean, they are yanking these guys in front of everybody. The entire Jerusalem religious and political leadership, they are standing before them. And remember one thing. These guys have clout. These are the ones that were able to push the Roman government to crucify Jesus. These, these are the same exact people that put the political pressure on the Roman government to have Jesus killed. They're powerful men. They have political connections. They're standing there. Now notice verse 7. <clears throat> and when they had set them in the midst, so picture this, standing in the middle of these, I don't know how many hundreds of men would be in this, standing before the power brokers, set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Okay, what are they talking about? Peter healed a guy. This is the whole start of the whole thing. Well, actually, Jesus healed a guy. Peter said, get up and walk. We saw this a couple weeks ago. This guy can't walk. He hasn't been able to walk for over 40 years. The guy asked Peter and John for money. Peter says, we got no cash, but get up. Peter yanks him up. The guy's legs straighten out, and he starts leaping, jumping around. Okay. These leaders want to know, what power was in you, or by what power did you do this? What are they asking for? They're asking, are you going to assign this power to Jesus or not? See, boys, if you haven't gotten the news yet, we hate Jesus, right? We hate this guy. So you cannot be healing people in Jesus' name. This is the issue. You can't be doing this. You can't assign this power to Jesus. Now, I want to tell you something. I want to talk about the flesh for a moment. What is the one thing the flesh loves to do? The one thing the flesh loves to do is we try to figure out how close we can make our disobedience look like obedience. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the flesh does? Like, how close can I, like, how, how close, like, to obedience can I get my disobedience? I've shared this before, but I remember when I was in Sunday school as a kid, and they would talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they were standing before the fire, and, and if they would, you know, say to the king, your God, they wouldn't be thrown in the fire, but they wouldn't do it, and they got thrown in the fire. I remember thinking, you know, if I was there, I would say the king is God, but I'd have my fingers crossed behind my back. See, then it wouldn't count, right? And then that way, I don't have to get thrown in the fire, but at the same time, I won't be dishonoring God. I remember thinking that as a kid. You know, like, how close can I, can I make my obedience look like, or make my disobedience look like obedience? That's what the flesh does, right? Now, Peter and John could get out of this whole incident by doing one thing. They asked, by what power did this guy get healed? If Peter says, by the power of Jehovah, 
He's out of there. You've got to remember that. They wouldn't have denied that Jehovah did this. And did Jehovah do it? Yes. Yeah. Kind of one of those, yeah. But if they say Jesus, they're risking death. Now, wouldn't your flesh say at that moment, all we got to say is God, and we're out of here, and it's technically not wrong, right? It's technically not wrong. It's better than crossing your fingers, because God did do it. Uh, you know, in my mind, I mean Jesus when I say that, but, but I'll just say God, right? They could do that. I just want you to catch this, because they want to know. They could get out of this in 30 seconds. But the real question is they know that if they say, by Jesus' power, they're in deep trouble. Also, keep in mind, Peter has faced this moment before in a lot lesser circumstance just a couple months earlier. Do you remember it? He's following Jesus as he's being arrested. He stands by a fire and there's a bunch of people by a fire. Hey, do you know Jesus? No, I don't know him. Goes to another place. Hey, aren't you with Jesus? No, no, no. Gets to another fire, some servant girl goes, hey, you're one of his disciples. And he starts swearing because he doesn't want to even be remotely close to Jesus. It's just, it's like he has faced this in a lesser moment. And he has proven to not have the courage or the boldness to identify with Jesus. So we know this about Peter. So we know that there's an easy way out of this problem by saying God. What does Peter do? Well, we know what he does. We know they stand true. But I wanted to say all of this so that verse 8 would pop when you read it. So think about this. Peter's already proven his, that, he, that, that he can't identify with Jesus. There's an easy way out of this moment, and they can avoid the whole Jesus mess. But look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I want you to stop and look at for a moment. The point of the Spirit of God is to give the child of God boldness to proclaim the Son of God. That's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God gives the child of God boldness to testify to the truth of the Son of God. That's the joy of the Spirit. He allows us to proclaim Jesus and He conforms our life to live like Jesus. We get to live and teach it. Peter, there's no way that any human being in the power of their flesh could stand before that council of politically strong people with courage. Knowing that these guys could get Peter killed. Because they've already proven that they're skilled at manipulating the government. They've already put someone on the cross already. They've already done it. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Because that's what the Spirit does. Remember, the tendency of the flesh is to back away from that moment. But the power of the Spirit is to keep you in that moment. So he's filled with the Spirit. And one thing you'll notice as you study the book of Acts is that the Spirit of God comes upon people and they start proclaiming Jesus. They do not back down. They do not back down. Now let's look at what Peter testifies to. Let's go back. Let's start looking at 8 again. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people... And elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, just in case you want to know which one I'm talking about, the Nazareth one, the one you hate, right? Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. That's power, isn't it? Like he's standing there with courage. In fact, notice there's, there's several things he says here. First thing, he says, I'm not backing off. I'm not going to say Jehovah. I'm not going to say God. I'm not going to find some easy way out. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That is the one. Clearly, Jesus, I am going to stand boldly before you even though I know you hate him. I will testify. I will identify with Jesus right here. Second thing he says, you murdered him. Now, by telling them that, he's saying that Jesus, they all know, by the way, that only God has the power to do what happened there. They know that's not a satanic miracle, right? Satan doesn't go around freeing people, puts people in bondage. So they know this is a God thing. So by I, I saying that Jesus did it is implying that he's God. And then saying, you killed him, is saying, you want to kill God. Like, you're really in a bad place. You are the ultimate rebel, is what he's saying. And even though you wanted him dead, the third thing he says is that God raised him from the dead. Powerful. Because you can't kill God. And so God raised him. The resurrection, by the way, is the key theology that is traced through the book of Acts. You will see it going through it all over the place. You can't get away from it. Let me just give you three things you need to know when the resurrection is preached in the book of Acts. This is just kind of a little extra. Um, but, but, but the reason, the importance of the resurrection is it really tells you three major things about Jesus. Let me tell you what it tells you. First thing it tells you is that he's perfect. That body did die, but that body couldn't be, uh, be held in the ground. Right? The wages of sin is death. Therefore, when you sin, you die. But if this person's been raised, it means that that they're not being punished. They themselves were perfect. So you think Jesus is perfect. Second, it's sufficient. Why did he die? Well, we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, every time he's preached, he's taken our sin upon ourselves. And so God is punishing him in our place. But if God raised him from the dead, it means it, it's sufficient. It accomplished the work. God is okay to remove the curse of death off of you. He's happy to do that. God did it. He's sufficient. And third, then, it shows that Jesus' work, his death was, was effective. It literally can save. I can go around and tell people, yeah, you sinned, but the good news is you can be set free. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the proof that you can, if you trust in him, you'll be saved. You don't all the stuff you're ashamed of, all the stuff that you hate, all the things you did, all the stuff you never want to tell, all the, the, all the horrible things that you think and feel and have done and will do tomorrow, you might say, God would never accept me. And I'd say, well, only on one condition if all those sins have been covered. And they have been on the cross. Dead, raised. God said, forgiven, it's done. I'm going to prove it by raising him from the dead. If he died in your place and he was raised in your place, then you have the hope 
salvation. This is why they keep preaching the cross and the resurrection. Very important. So he says he's been raised from the dead. But Peter, though, is not done by saying it was Jesus, you killed him, God raised him. Now Peter becomes a preacher, and he begins to preach Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected is the cornerstone. What's he talking about? Psalm 118 is talking about salvation. It's saying there's this gate, and this gate is the gate to salvation. You can, you can get to heaven through this gate. You can get to God through this gate. And, and on this gate, this gate has a cornerstone. And there were builders building that cornerstone. But at the end of the day, the builders looked at this cornerstone, and the cornerstone is the whole anchor of the whole gate system. And they said, we don't want that cornerstone. Even though we were part of the process of helping to bring about this cornerstone, we don't want it. So we're going to walk away from the salvation of God. It's a picture. It's an image. And he's saying, Peter's saying, listen, when that Psalm 118 was written, God was thinking of you guys. Specifically you guys. The religious leadership of Israel. Here in the temple, doing all these religious things, but at the end of the day, there is, a, there is an anchor, the source of salvation. And he has come, and you have said, I don't want it. You guys are the builders in that psalm, is what he's saying. You're fulfilling Psalm 118. And so he preaches this. Now, I have to say, that's about as bold as you can get. Right? I mean, you are preaching the Bible. And the Bible this passage is you guys. It's Jesus. He died. He rose. I know half this room doesn't even believe in the resurrection, but he rose from the dead. Like He's standing there bold. And then he preaches Psalm 118, and his use of Psalm 118 is perfectly in context. It's a brilliant exegesis of that psalm. This leaves the religious leaders bewildered. Now let's move on as the story advances. Look at how it leaves them bewildered. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. They make three observations. First, these guys were bold. Even they know that it took a ton of courage to say what they just said. To stand there knowing that they could be crucified. They know that they are standing there saying, I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to tell you like it is. They see the boldness. Second, they notice they're uneducated. Why is that observation there? I believe that's there because Peter exposited Psalm 118 beautifully. He applied verse 22 to them in context. And these scribes, I think, know. Hey, yeah, he handled that text right. It's exactly what that text says. And if Jesus is God, that's exactly what we've done. How in the world could you guys handle the word so clearly? Is what the, You know, wow. For guys who'd never been to school. Kind of hard-working fishermen. No education. No mentors. They, these guys are just, they're, they're, they know their boats. They know their nets. But they don't know the, the academic ins and outs of, of Hebrew and Aramaic and all of this. But yet, they preached it. Third, they could tell then, these guys had to have been with Jesus. Because this is exactly what Jesus would have done. He would have stood here boldly. He would have condemned us. And he would have thrown the Bible at us in context. And we wouldn't be able to re refute it. We can tell you are Jesus, guys. The great thing about the Spirit of God when it comes upon you is it gives you the mind of God. 
And it allows you to, it doesn't matter how educated you are, it doesn't matter where you're at, a five-year-old could do this. It doesn't matter. That's a great thing about the Spirit of God. So they're with Jesus. So, verse 14, let's keep moving through here. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Here's the problem they have. You got Peter, John, and the guy. And the guy is clearly healed. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the fact that he was kind of frolicking through the temple? You know, he was. It's like he had never walked his whole life. With no physical therapy, he's like leaping, it says. You know, he's running around, frolicking. And so here you got this guy there, and they're like, what are we going to do? Because clearly God did this. And these guys won't back down from this whole Jesus thing. So they're stuck. So think about what you would do if you were an evil Sanhedrin. You would do what these guys did, look at verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave, like, you guys, get out of the room. We've got to figure this out. Commanded them to leave the council. They conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Okay, very interesting. We can't really fight it. It's pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. So the only thing we can do is just bark like a dog, because, like loud. Just rah, 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 right? Just kind of yell at these guys. That's the only tool we have in our toolbox because, you know, 20,000 people are celebrating in Jerusalem right now. And, uh, and it's pretty clear that some great miracle happened. And there's no way we can deny the miracle. There's no way we can stop the crowds that are all pumped about this miracle. So what are we going to do? We are going to warn these guys. You know what I love about Jesus? And whenever you are connected to Christ is that it ends up frustrating the people who hate Jesus. Because in Christ, miracle, great things happen. People love, they forgive. They, there are all kinds of things that come over people. And no one can actually attack the person who's walking in the Spirit. The only thing the person who, who hates it can do is just bark. That's it. It's so frustrating to deal with Jesus' people. You know, it's so hard for these people. They don't, they don't know what to do, so the only thing they can do is yell. Just yell louder. And that's where they're at. They're bewildered. So they're going to warn them. So this leads us to the benchmark, right? You can see the flow now. The belief to the boldness to the bewilderment now to the benchmark. Notice verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now that's kind of like a lame thing, right? It, it sounds like, you know, it's like, now we strongly recommend that you do not. But I don't think that's what it was. These guys are probably going, you remember what we did to Jesus? Peter's going, yeah, but God raised him. You know, but remember, we beat him. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. You know. But these guys are probably reminding them of every single thing, the power they have, flexing their muscles, you know, bringing the power and the force of all of the religious and political, religious, religious and political system. Wow, I made up a new word. <laughs> Write that one down. I want to use that, religious. A religious and political system upon them. Now notice what Peter does. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them. This is a total Jesus answer, by the way. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Kind of 
transforming this and putting it back on their lap. These guys are claiming to be the leaders of God. They're claiming that they are connected to God some kind of religious sort of way. And he's saying, okay, so Peter's ba- the basic answer of Peter is this. You guys are saying not to do this anymore. And you guys think you're from God. And God did this. And God did this because Jesus is God. And, and we see it and we have evidence that he's God. And so now what you're asking us to do is obey you over God. You figure out if that's a wise thing to do. That's what he's saying. Think about this, guys. I'm going to let you think about it. And I'm going to keep proclaiming Jesus. You figure it out because you just realized you have just said the dumbest thing you could say. Disobey God so that we can obey God our way. I mean, Peter is calling him to be dumb. Think about this, guys. How silly was that counsel? He's challenging him. He's standing there boldly and saying, this makes no sense at all. Because, you see, we have seen Jesus. We were with him for three years. We watched him die. We watched him rise. He opened our eyes to the scriptures. His spirit came upon us. We have seen him heal people. We've watched him raise the dead. We've seen him cast out demons. His spirit is working through us. And we saw this guy get, what? And you're going to tell us to stop? You know, this is like, duh. That's what he's saying to him. What are you doing? You figure this out. Now, here's the problem. They can't really respond to that, so look at verse 31. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of the healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So you got this 45-year-old guy who's never walked. Everyone knows he hasn't walked. They've been watching him for 45 years. Boom, now he can walk. Everybody's praising God. Well, we can't stop the worship of God going on. We can't stop all the momentum. So we're just going to keep threatening you all the more. We're going to throw you in jail. We're going to beat you. We're going to scourge you. You think what the Roman soldiers did to Jesus was bad. We're going to leave you to the inches of your death. We're going to whip your children. We're going to attack your wives. And you can just imagine the threats coming at them. It's the only thing they can do. But we really can't do it to you right now because God's being worshipped and it's pretty clear God did this. But we don't really like God. So there's the story. Now, how do you stand there and do that? I don't think you're all living here in the United States Because God said, you guys are a bunch of really weak-kneed people, and you couldn't handle living in these other countries. So I've put you here because you're lame. I don't think that's the case. I don't think God is saying that about us. We're here because we don't have the courage to live over there. I think we've got to recognize that that same boldness is to be in us. Whether we face a Sanhedrin council or whether we face a brother-in-law or sister-in-law or relative who doesn't like Jesus and wants us to keep our mouth shut. Same boldness. So what's the key? I'm going to give you four observations from this text. Four things that if you really meditate on these things, I think it should enliven boldness. Here's the first observation. God is the one who saves people. 
The good news of that is that I don't have to sit down and come up with a strategy of saving every single person in my family or at my work or wherever it is, I, my engagements. I don't have to sit down, how do I get them there? How do I get them? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And start owning this thing to such a degree that I have failed because they're not in Christ. No, relax. I will be, all I have to be is faithful with the word. Faithful with it. Boom, pressure off. That's the first key. Peter wasn't responsible to save anybody in that Sanhedrin. He was just responsible to be faithful with the message. Faithful with his life, faithful with his words. Second thing to keep in mind, we walk in the power of the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you are not leaving here with God going, boy, figure this out, man, you better figure this out, you better, you know, muster up the courage. The reality is that the blessing of the Spirit is given to empower you to speak, empower you to be bold. And so the reality of the life of my life is to say, Spirit, I'm dependent on you, dependent on your courage, depending on you, which means what? Which means that I probably will go through life feeling weak and unable to do anything. And that's probably a better place to be. It's a much better place for me to walk through life going, I don't know if I have the courage to do this, Spirit. I believe you'll, you'll empower me to do it. Give me your boldness. That's a much better place to be than to say, oh, I could do that. Remember Peter. Jesus, I'll kill for you. I'll die for you. Right? He's willing to take on a Roman soldier with a little fishing knife, cut off the guy's ear. But then he couldn't handle a servant girl around a fire. He didn't have the courage. He didn't have the boldness. None of us do. None of us do. I don't look at Peter as a superhero. I look at Peter like me. And what I see in Peter is somebody who was filled with the Spirit. And he had the boldness. When you leave this room, you do not walk out of here alone, child of God. So thirdly then, third observation, keep the main thing the main thing. I want to keep preaching Jesus. I want people to know Christ. If I can be faithful to that message, be faithful to what he has done, be faithful to tell people. However the situation arises, I'm going to be faithful to that message, believing that the Spirit will give me boldness and wisdom to do it, and God can open people's eyes to understand it. So if I know that God is the one who saves, I walk in the power of Spirit, I keep the main thing the main thing, then fourthly, I can obey God and not my fears. I don't need to obey my fears. Because my fears aren't God. And I can obey God. So given the first three things, I can obey God. Because God saves, the Spirit empowers, and Christ is the power. So I can obey God, not my fear. So I would just encourage you, meditate on those things. Maybe put those on a card somewhere, stick them on a mirror, put them on your phone, put them as a screensaver, whatever. Get them out in front of you and begin to take ownership of this reality. So, would you bow your head? Let's pray. Thank God for this. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the Spirit of God. I thank you that it emboldens us. We are weak people. We don't have the courage to stand in the, among those group of politically powerful people and to stay true. Lord, none of us have that courage. We can't even stand up in front of a servant girl, in front of a fire, proclaim Jesus. But I thank you that your spirit empowers. 
that the message of Christ is powerful, and that you open people's eyes, and that no matter what happens, we can be bold in our weakness. I thank you for this testimony, and I pray, God, that that this testimony of what happened with Peter and John would be a testimony we can give testimony to in our lives. Allow these truths to take root for Christ and his kingdom and his glory. Amen.